please turn with me to Lord's Day 35 of the Heidelberg Catechism in the Book of Praise, page 552, 552. And there we'll deal with the second commandment, just uh, by way of reminder, that second commandment reads, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Then Lord's Day 35, what does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship Him in any other manner than He has commanded in His Word. May we then not make any image at all. God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity? No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants His people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of His Word." So far, our confession concerning the second commandment. In response, we'll sing, in response to the preaching, we'll sing Psalm 111, the stanzas 3, 4, and 5, about how God delights in His people who obey His commands. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this um, second commandment may seem a little bit remote to us. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. I have uh, been in, had the pleasure of been in, being in most of your homes, and I can't recall seeing too many carved images in your homes. I mean, does anybody even carve things anymore? But even if you happen to have a carving or two in your home, I feel absolutely certain that none of you is bowing down to them or serving those carved images. You're not even tempted to do that. And if we think about the ministry of the Lord Jesus in which we know that He obeyed all of God's commandments, did He ever face much of a challenge with respect to this commandment? Was Jesus ever tempted to make a carved image and bow down to it? We know he grew up around a carpenter's shop, so he certainly would have been familiar with a chisel and a hammer, working with wood. But was it a thing in Israel in his day to carve out an idol like a Baal or an Ashtoreth or the like? Was there a market for image-making in downtown Nazareth or in the area of Galilee? 
Well, when you look through Scripture, the silence of the Bible in the New Testament compared to the Old suggests that this was really a non-issue in Jesus' day, just as it is for all of us in our day. And yet, that does not mean that this second commandment was a non-issue for Jesus and the Israelites or for us, for God gave His law for all time. Each of the Ten Commandments expresses God's will for the lives of His people, and that will never changes. When God spoke the Ten Commandments, then He accommodated Himself to the Israelites in the days of Moses, and He, he phrased each of the Ten Commandments according to the, the need of their time and the standout issues of that day. Back in that day, there were Baals and Ashtoreths and Dagons and so many others that people were carving. But that takes nothing away from the, the underlying and everlasting principle in each of the Ten Commandments. So we have to distinguish between the, the wording of the Ten Commandments that sometimes was very bound to that time and the principle underneath. Take, for example, the Tenth Commandment. God frames it this way, you shall not covet your neighbor's, and then He lists a number of things, you shall not covet your neighbor's male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey. Many Israelites had those things. They had servants and they had oxen and donkeys, but I don't think many Ancasterites have any of those things. So does that mean that this 10th commandment about coveting has no use or no meaning for us? Well, instinctively, we know it does, right? It doesn't take much to realize that the issue is not really about your neighbor's animals. It's about what's going on in your heart, the selfish desires of your heart. That's what the Tenth Commandment is getting at. Well, so with the Second Commandment and each of the Ten, we have to do that extra work of going below the surface, and we have to ask, what is the deeper issue here? What is the principle that God is teaching, and how do we put this principle into practice today? And the issue at the bottom of the second commandment is this, how will I go about serving my God? Will it be His way, or will it be my way? So I bring you this word of the Lord, follow Jesus in obeying every word of God. Follow Jesus in obeying every word word of God. We must want what God wants, and we must do what God commands. Well, it might be helpful to clarify for a moment how the second commandment differs from the first commandment, because they kind of sound the same at first. To some ears, they appear to blend together into one commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Are those really two distinct, different commands? The Roman Catholics and the Lutherans don't think so. They take them all as one commandment. Both statements are about worshiping God. We might ask, well, when God forbids us to make images to worship, isn't He forbidding us to worship other gods? So, aren't we, in fact, dealing with the same basic command to worship the one true God only? 
Well, the answer to that is no. There is a close connection, to be sure, and, and worship is certainly involved in both the first and the second commandments, and yet there's a difference, an important one. You might recall from last time when we looked at the first commandment that that initial commandment is all about trust. Who are you going to trust? Who or what will have your number one allegiance? The Lord demands that we place all our trust in Him alone. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm number one. So the first commandment is very much very clearly about the identity of the being you will worship. It's all about whom you'll worship. But the second commandment is all about the manner in which you will worship that being. It's about how you'll worship the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, the Lord mentions carving images here because that was the number one method of worshiping all sorts of gods in those days of Moses. All the heathens, all the pagans, they, they placed their trust in a variety of gods. Usually they didn't just have one god, they had several or even a multitude of gods. They thought those gods lived on high mountains or even in the sky beyond their reach. And to worship these gods that were up above, they, they would carve images out of wood, sometimes out of metal, and they would set these images up in, in temples and they would bow down to these statues. Now, the image was not meant as a, a lookalike, as some kind of photographic description or, or image of the God as if they, they had an idea of what the God looked like. They, they didn't know what the God looked like. But these images represented or symbolized the power, the kind of power they believed a particular God had. So, for example, to worship Baal, whom the Israelites were attracted to worship many times, they believed Baal held the power of fertility. That's the power to make your herds increase, to make your family increase, to make your crops increase. And to represent Baal, they would carve the image of a young bull or calf, which to the ancient people represented the power to reproduce. A bull was thought to have the great power to reproduce, so it became a symbol of fertility. Now, different gods were believed to hold different powers over different areas of lives, so people would choose a, a fitting symbol and carve that symbol out of a log of wood, and then they would worship that god through the means of that image. They would bow in front of that image. They would sacrifice to the god, their god, in front of that image. They would pray to their god in front of it. They often would have a series of rituals taught them by the priests. The priests would instruct them that you had to do this and this and this in order to please the God. And they would do all these things with, with a certain frame of mind. They were constantly thinking, if I serve Baal, if I worship him and honor him and praise him and bring him gifts, the right kind of gifts, if I do all the things that Baal likes then Baal will bless me, and Baal will make my herds grow and my family grow and my 
Riches increase and he'll make me prosperous and life will be good. See, pagan worship, we really have to understand this, pagan worship was never about the the person enjoying a relationship with a, a divine being above. No, pagan worship was always about exploiting, exploiting a power they believed was above for their own good. Well, now you can begin to see why God was so triggered by the making of statues and images. To understand God's seriousness about this commandment, you have to understand that these images were designed to be a means for the worshiper to somehow cajole their God, somehow flatter this God, sweet-talk the God, coax the God into doing what the worshiper wanted. So making a carved image was the first step in, a, in a, the ancient method of manipulating the gods to get what you wanted. That's what the Israelites were doing when they had Aaron make an image of a golden calf. You remember that? Moses had to go up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, in fact. And Moses was away for an extended period of time. And they asked Aaron to set up for them some kind of image of a god. They were not intending to worship a different god. They were not intending to worship Baal or, or Dagon. No, they were thinking still about Yahweh. Listen to how Aaron introduces the golden calf, which he made with all their offerings. He says this to them in Exodus 32, "'This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt.'" This is Yahweh. This is a representation of Yahweh's power. The calf was an image through which the Israelites intended to worship the Lord. And later in Israelite history, Jeroboam, King Jeroboam, did the very same thing. He was the first king of the ten tribes after the kingdom split. And for political reasons, King Jeroboam did not want his people to go south to Jerusalem to the temple. He wanted them to stay north and stay under his control. So what did he do? Well, he took a page out of Aaron's book. He set up two golden calves, one in the south of his region and the other in the north, and he introduced them to Israel with the same words of Aaron, Behold your God. Go ahead, he was saying. Worship Yahweh, but do it here in these golden calves. And that made the Lord fiercely angry. We know this whole issue of the second commandment makes the Lord very angry because He adds a stark warning to the commandment. It really stands out in, in all the Ten Commandments. It's to the second one that God appends this warning. And the warning is this, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. I mean, that's strong language, isn't it? You can hear it. The Lord is upset. The Lord is indignant when He comes around to the second commandment. Why? Because behind the making of these images was the thought, I can manipulate the Lord. Images were thought to give the worshiper control over the God. 
And that's what offended the living God so much because no human could ever control Him. The very thought is blasphemous. Nobody could ever manipulate the Creator and sustainer of all that exists. The idea is ludicrous. The idea is insulting and in itself is a deeply rebellious act against God. It's man's effort to try and get the upper hand over his maker, and that is a gross perversion of the reality of things. So this first, to go back a moment, the first commandment is God saying, worship only me. The second commandment is God saying, worship me only in the way I tell you. Don't think for one instant that you can coerce me or cajole me or move me to do for you what you want. That's the issue. And I wonder sometimes, brothers and sisters, if we, we inadvertently maybe do this with our prayers. You ever had something that you wanted from God? You wanted badly, even maybe desperately, and then you go to God in prayer and you plead with Him to give you this one thing that you want. And we try to persuade God we have reasons. We offer even an incentive maybe. Lord, please give me this one thing. I've been behaving really good lately. Or God, if you grant me this one wish, I promise to increase my donations. Or if you're really desperate, I promise to go into the mission field. Or maybe do both. Or maybe you promise, Lord, I'll never do this bad thing again if you get me out of this jam. We try to make a deal with the Lord. Does the Lord want us to make a deal with Him? Don't misunderstand me, beloved. Of course the Lord wants us to pray. And of course, we may plead our needs before His throne. We may even reason with Him according to God's promises. That's all over the Psalms. But God does not want us to negotiate with Him or somehow try and appease Him or make a deal with Him. He wants us to understand the Lord is already on our side. He doesn't have to be appeased. He doesn't have to be cajoled or won over. He's already on our side. He's already been appeased by the very death of His own Son. And so He's already looking upon us favorably. He already looks upon you as His son and daughter. You don't have to earn His favor. You've got it. That's why it's such an offense if we do the negotiation game with the Lord. Our prayers must never be an effort to get God to give us what we want, but they must be an effort to ask God to provide us with all we need so that we can do what He wants. What He wants. As Jesus taught us in His prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the ticket to the second commandment. Let God's will be done in my life. 
Our catechism picks up on that in answer 96, where we confess, what does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship Him in any other manner than He has commanded in His Word. It speaks of worship, which brings to mind, of course, the very thing we're doing now and we do every Lord's Day, and it most certainly includes the worship service of the church. When we gather for worship, we must indeed be absolutely careful to bring our worship to God in the manner that He commands us. That's why we don't have frescoes of the Lord's Last Supper painted on the ceiling. Nor do we have pictures of Jesus' ministry in stained glass windows decorating the windows there. Nor do we have people come to the front and perform a skit to enact the gospel message. As we worship as church, we do not communicate the good news of salvation through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. We don't do that in drama presentations or musical theater or liturgical dance or personal testimony as some others do. Why don't we do that? Because God has not commanded those things in His Word. That's why. We're trying to follow God's instruction book. And in God's instruction book, the Bible, He says it very plainly, preach my Word in season and out of season. Proclaim my salvation. Go to the nations. Preach to the people. The simple preaching. That's how I want my people to worship me. That's how I'll present myself to them in the preaching. Get to know me. Come to love me and honor me in my word, through my word, the word that's read aloud, the word that's proclaimed aloud. That's how you honor me, says God, and it's through that that I will bless you. That's what I want from you, says God. Do we want that too? Or do we sometimes itch for other means and methods to worship God that we find, we think, we feel are more compelling? Only a fool thinks that he's wiser than God. The Catechism mentions that too. We should not be wiser than God. If God wanted us to have drama, or liturgical dance, he would have instructed us that way. A wise person submits to God's will and trains themselves to want what God wants and do all that God commands in every area of life. For worship doesn't stop the moment we sing that threefold amen or the moment we walk out the church doors. Another word for worship is the word serve. We can see that in answer 97 in our catechism, the last part. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. So there's a parallel. Worship is serving and serving is worshiping. 
So in a very real sense, brothers and sisters, all of life is worship. Certainly, there is the formal worship of the church, as we're having right now. And you have your times as family worship. And you hopefully also have individual private worship and fellowship with the Lord. But outside of those concentrated times where we open Scripture and we pray to God and we listen to Him in the Scripture, even then, outside of those times, we are still worshiping God. When we work each day, when we go to school, we do these things in service of God. We do these things for the glory of God. It's a large portion of everyday worship. So when we're raising our children, when we're hanging out with our friends, when we're enjoying downtime in some other way, we're always doing those things as sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, and we're doing it as part of a whole life service where we bring glory to Him. It's all worship. Life, in all of its rich many aspects, is worship. That's what Paul is getting at in that famous passage in Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies living sacrifices. Every breath you take and every move you make, it's a living sacrifice. So we're always worshiping. We're always serving God. This is what the Lord Jesus demonstrates in Matthew 16, which we read, where He's confronted by a temptation, isn't He? Peter approaches Him, rebukes Him actually, and the temptation is to sin against the second commandment. Here you've got Peter, one of the leading disciples, who's just made the glorious confession that Jesus is the Christ. And he does that, says Jesus, because the Father has revealed that to him. So you have to understand there's a contrast going on. Peter is, is sort of at the heights of of being blessed by God, that he understands that Jesus is the Christ. And in the next incident, he goes to the depths because Satan's got control of him. I mean, that happens to us too, right? You go from highs to lows in the, the walk with the Lord and in faith life. Well, we read in verse 21 that Jesus, for the first time, begins to explain to the 12 disciples what exactly him being the Christ all entails. They hadn't heard this before. And he says to them, verse 21, The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and be killed and on the third day be raised. This was the path for Jesus specifically and exclusively as the Christ. Not all Christians have to go that path. We can't even go that path. But this was God's expressed will for the Christ. Suffering and death are what the Father sent the Son to do. It was a hard, excruciatingly hard, agonizing thing to undergo that we could never really understand. But it was what the Father wanted. And so it was what the Son wanted as well. But Peter didn't want it. 
He wanted none of it. And as spokesman for the twelve, we can be sure that none of those disciples wanted it either. They didn't even get it. The other Gospels say, because Jesus said this a few more times, they didn't understand, they didn't comprehend, it was a mystery to them. But on this occasion, Peter at least understood enough to know that that's not the way the Messiah should go. The path for the Christ to bring salvation to Israel, according to Peter, was not the pathway of suffering, it was the pathway of fighting. Not being victimized, but being a victor. Not death, but life. Not trampled underfoot by authorities, but by taking authority, the rightful authority, and being crowned king over God's people. Peter wanted him to, to move to Jerusalem and establish God's kingship on earth. The twelve are quite insistent on this, for Peter, Peter boldly takes Jesus aside, his, his master and his teacher, and then Luke, or rather Matthew, tells us he starts to rebuke Jesus. Think about that. Imagine the nerve that that took for the disciple, that be any disciple in those days, to rebuke a master, but now you're rebuking Jesus. Now you're telling the Son of God off. The one that he just said was the Christ. Son of the living God. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Who is the Lord actually in that scenario? Isn't Peter trying to manipulate the Lord? You see, they certainly wanted to serve God. They certainly wanted to exalt God's Christ. So this is not a first commandment issue. They had the right God, but they wanted it to be done in their own way, those disciples. And that's the great offense against the second commandment. God's way was the way of suffering, death, and glory after that. But their way was, hey, skip the suffering. Skip the suffering and the death and go instantly to glory. And that is against God's will. It wouldn't even actually bring about the salvation they wanted. Here was Peter, a man, trying to tell the Son of God to do things his way. And you know, put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a minute. That would have been a very, very powerful temptation. First of all, it comes from a friend, right? A close friend. So when your close friend is telling you something so seriously, because Peter believed this with all of his heart, that Jesus should not do this. I mean, you, you're listening with both ears when your close friend tells you something, right? And couple that with this. Jesus knew exactly what was coming down the line. He knew what awaited him in Jerusalem, the, the pain of rejection by all those friends who were now around him, by the whole church, in fact, he knew the shame that was coming, the anguish of those false accusations, the anguish of the crown of thorns being pressed on him, of having his back shredded by a whip. He knew the bleak horror of being nailed to a cross to die the most agonizing death the Romans knew how to inflict. 
And in all of that, to experience the wrath of his Father pouring out on him and the total abandonment of his Father's love as he hung there suspended between heaven and earth. Jesus knew all that was coming. You don't think he was tempted to take Peter up on his offer? As we saw it last time, Jesus is fully man. He lived in the weakness of the flesh, same as you and me. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, he even prayed that this cup might be taken from him if it was the Father's will. So it's not as if this thought didn't cross Jesus' mind. It's not as if Jesus didn't wish to be relieved of all the terror that he was about to experience. Only he remained determined to serve his God by obeying every word of his Father, even if it meant his own destruction. Is that your desire too, beloved? Are you as determined as your Savior to obey every word of God? For right after Jesus rebukes Peter, in turn, he goes on to teach the disciples this very principle found in the second commandment when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let him, her, deny him or herself. What does that mean? That means that you and I are to say no to what we naturally want. And we are to say yes to what God wants. And what does that expression mean to take up our cross? You know, a lot of people think it means, well, we're called to bear up under hardships. The hardships God gives me, they identify hardship as the cross. And folks say sometimes, I've got a, a lot of crosses to bear these days. But actually, that's not what Jesus is talking about. You might have, anybody might have burdens to bear, but those aren't what Jesus are ta is talking about. He's talking about bearing one cross. Take up your cross, one cross. Not a random cross that happens to befall you, but the cross which you carry behind your Savior Jesus. Take up that cross. And on that cross, you nail your natural, selfish, sinful will on that cross, you die to yourself and you commit yourself to following Jesus your whole life. That's your cross. That's my cross. That's the cross of everybody who confesses the name of Christ. By the very power of Christ's Spirit who lives in me, I begin to deny my will. I give up trying to please myself and I instead pledge to do my Lord's will. I'm committed to doing Christ's will, to pleasing Jesus Christ in everything I do. That's my cross. That's your cross. 
That is following Jesus in obeying every word of God. That's doing God's will according to the second commandment of the law. Jesus was tempted by Peter to serve God another way. But Jesus refused. His response was swift. He turned the tables around, even by physically turning. It says there, he turned and said to Peter. So he wheels around. You can just imagine. He wheels around and he says something I don't think Peter ever could have forgotten. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Oh, that would have stung Peter, right? That's one of those rebukes that rips, but it was for Peter's good, for our good. This temptation came from one of Jesus' closest friends, but thanks be to God, beloved, your Savior and mine saw Satan's hand in Peter's words, for Jesus was committed to obeying also the second commandment all the way to the cross so that the sin of Peter and the sin of you and the sin of me and all of our sins against the second commandment and every commandment could be forgiven in full as we repent and trust in Jesus. That's something we're going to be reassured of, Lord willing, next week, Sunday in the Lord's Supper. So as you prepare this week, and as you think about next Sunday being here and putting the bread in your mouth and taking the cup to your lips, remember and trust that Jesus obeyed the second commandment along with all the rest. He obeyed it to the full in your place. Forgiveness for every failure of yours and mine to deny our will. Forgiveness is ours. And Jesus' righteousness counts as our own. And also by the Spirit of Christ, the renewed and refreshed determination to take up your cross and do your Lord's bidding, that is yours too and mine in full, reassured to us in the supper. The blood of Jesus and the Spirit of Jesus avail for us. Beloved, embrace this gospel and go forward walking joyfully with cross on shoulder behind your Savior. Amen.